And as a reminder to all of uh, to our regulars, I want you to turn to Hebrews 10, verse 7. Then said I, Lo, I come to the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. In the volume of the book, it is written of me, the Lord Jesus declares. As a reminder or as an explanation to our guest, Luke 24, verse 44. God's word tells us clearly, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was with you, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled. Verse 45 which are written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And in order for both our guest and our regulars to understand, John chapter 5, verse 39. God's word is very clear. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, for they are they which testify of me. In the volume of the book, it is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, it is about Christ. And what this series is doing is it's going through the scriptures. We're going to, from Genesis to Revelation, and we're finding Christ of the book. In Genesis, he's, he's creator. In Exodus, he's deliverer. In Leviticus, he's lawgiver. In Numbers, he's leader. In Deuteronomy, he's ruler. And all the way through the scripture, we are going to be locating and identifying the Lord Jesus Christ in the book. As a matter of fact, uh, on the back pew, I think there's a list. If you've not gotten a, a list of Christ of the book that lists them all that we're going to be going through, especially the Old Testament, uh, it's, it's back there. So uh, we gave out copies a long time ago. So if you haven't gotten a copy, let me encourage you to, to get a copy. Of that. Stick it in your Bible so that you can follow along. Uh, last week, we looked at Ezekiel. Remember Ezekiel. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, Christ is the Lord they shall know. The Lord they shall know. Sixty-one times he uses that phrase. God's word uses that phrase. He is the Lord they shall know. That is the theme throughout the book of Ezekiel, both as God who was their judge and the judgment that was coming upon uh, Israel and also the re restoration that he's promised that in the judgment they're going to know that he's the Lord in the rest restoration they're going to know that he is the Lord uh, this morning I want us to look at three different books only because if we don't kind of get through here we're never going to get through here uh, the only excuse for not getting through though is the rapture but that's a really good excuse or death, and, and both of them at this point, especially the rapture, uh, we are looking forward to that, to that glad day. But I want us to look briefly at Joel and also Obadiah, and then we're going to get primarily into the book of Esther, and we're going to be discovering Christ of the book. In the book of, of Obadiah and all of the prophets, all of the prophets. And as we go through this, we're trying to do it chronologically. Uh, you, as a matter of fact, we did Ezekiel last week. And Ezekiel is way over here. And Esther is way over here. And Obadiah is back over here. So the Bible is not in chronological order. But in order for us to understand and kind of get an idea of when these events are happening... And, and basically what that does is it really shows the authenticity of the Scriptures, that you can trust the Scriptures to be real and, and to be true. And things that they just fit together hand in glove, and it just shows that Christ Jesus being the author of that book, which is about Him, fits perfectly as we go through, there, through that. So uh, as all the prophets talked about the need for Israel to repent. All of them did, except for one. Except for one. That was Obadiah. I, Obadiah was not to the nation of Israel. Obadiah was to uh, the nation of Edom. And I believe in the scripture we find that Edom represents all the Gentile nations that hated the nation of Israel. Look at Obadiah. 
chapter 1. And it's, a sh it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. Look at Obadiah chapter 1. There's only 21 verses. Only 21 verses to Obadiah. That Obadiah is a vindication of Jeremiah 49.1. Much of what Obadiah is saying, Jeremiah also said concerning Edom. Now, Edom, they are descendants of Esau. And if you remember all the way back in Genesis 49, Esau said, I hate Jacob and I'm going to kill him. And the bitterness and the hatred and the warfare that has existed uh, has just intensified down through the ages. So that Edom was a thorn in Israel's flesh throughout the entire time. And so Obadiah is a warning to, to Edom, which again, there are scriptures that talk about how that represents all the Gentile nations, all nations that hate Israel. It's a warning of this is what's going to happen. Obadiah chapter 1, the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a rumor from the Lord and an ambassador sent among the Gentiles. Arise ye and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made you small among the Gentiles and thou art greatly despised. Talking about Edom. Remember in Romans it talks about the fact that uh, Paul is, is quoting there in, in uh, in Romans, that Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Uh, not the individual, but the nation, because of all the, the problems and, and difficulty that Edom gave to, to the nation of Israel. Drop, and, and Obadiah, drop down to verse 10. For it gives us the reason. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. So Obadiah is letting Edom have it. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the Gentiles. We've talked about the day of the Lord. We've talked about the day of the Lord, and that is the time that God's vengeance, God's wrath is going to be upon the earth. Verse 18, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau, Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. In Obadiah, Christ is the one who will judge all nations. That's who Christ is in Obadiah. That that judgment is coming. That Christ is the, he is the judge of all nations. Now Obadiah and Joel are written about the same time as Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. They, they were prophesying. Now, Joel and Obadiah, there are no dates to associate them with, with exactly. You can't pinpoint exactly, but they say enough things. They prophesy enough things. They give the uh, inner, uh, inner points that as you read it, you understand, okay, this is what was going on during that time. Look at Joel. And we've already talked about Joel quite a bit. But in Joel, Christ Jesus, he is uh, the one who will roar out of Zion. Uh, he, uh, verse 16 of Joel chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake. And the Lord shall be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. That day is still future. That day is coming. And friends, i got to tell you, the Lord is going to roar out of Zion. And between Obadiah warning the Gentile nations and Joel warning the Gentile nations, look at verse 18 of Joel chapter 3. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine and the hills shall flow with milk and the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. And Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness. So Obadiah, the Lord who will judge all nations, Joel, the one who's going to roar out of Zion, is talking about that future judgment that's still coming. 
And as we talk about, as we believe so strongly here at Bible Fellowship, these scriptures are pointing to a future day that I believe is near. Is near. When these, when we're going to start seeing these type of things happen. Now, remember this. Jeremiah, Obadiah, and Joel are all prophesying the, about the their prophecies, the last part of Jeremiah anyway, prophesy at the last part of Judah's existence in the land, about the last seven years of Judah being in the land. Nebuchadnezzar has already taken Judah captive. And Jeremiah, it, the weeping prophet, is still prophesying, Israel, you, you, you better repent, you better repent. And then Jeremiah stops and says, no, don't, no more. No more. This is going to happen. You're being taken into captivity. It's not going to do you any more good to, to, to repent. Your sin is just too great. You're going into captivity. But at that time, Obadiah, he no longer calls for repentance. He just tells the Gentile nations, God is going to be the Lord, is going to be the judge of all nations. And Joel is talking about the day of the Lord, and he's going to roar out of Zion. You better be getting ready. And while they are prophesying in the land, you have two prophets that have already been taken into captivity. That's Daniel and Ezekiel. And they're out, out, of, out of the land in, uh, in Babylon. And they go before uh, the final destruction. And remember, there's three phases. Three phases of Judah going into captivity. There's the first phase when Daniel is taken. And then a few years later, uh, Ezekiel and about 10,000 plus are taken. And when the 10,000 plus are taken, we're talking about people like Ezekiel. And you're talking about people like Mordecai. And you're talking about people like Esther as a young girl. So between the first siege and then being taken into captivity, and the last is about 20 years. And it's during that 20 years you've got all of these people prophesying and telling Israel, here's what's coming. You better be prepared. You better be prepared. And it pretty much fell on deaf ears. Sort of like today. When you tell people what's coming. Or not what's coming, but who's coming. See, back then they would tell people what's coming. The judgment was coming. Boy, now today we need to let people know who's coming. And they need to be prepared. Because Christ Jesus is coming. So you've, you, you, you have all of these people, the the final siege by Nebuchadnezzar has taken place and you have Daniel and Ezekiel and they are prophesying there and after that something else takes place they're out of the land now something startling happens while they're out of the land Ezekiel and Daniel are still prophesying but during this captivity, an event takes place that has the potential of totally eliminating God's people. They're not in the land. They're outside the land. Something is devised in order to destroy all the Jews. Now, who in the world would come up with a ploy, would come up with an idea like that? Well, I can tell you who's at the top of that list. That's Satan. Satan himself. Ever since the garden, when God told Satan that you are going to bruise his heel, the seed of the woman, I'm going to put enmity between your seed, Satan, and the woman's seed, and you're going to bruise his heel, which is not a mortal wound, but he's going to bruise your head, which is destructive, which is a fatal wound. I mean, the wound of the head is a whole lot worse than the head of the, the wound of the heel, right? And so ever since that, Satan has been energetically trying to destroy the line of Christ, the seed of the one. He has been trying to eliminate that messianic line from occurring because if he can stop the messianic line, if he can stop the seed of the woman, if he can stop Christ from being born, if he is never born, if God incarnate never came, then 
that prophecy is not going to be fulfilled, then he's not going to have his head bruised. So when Cain killed Abel, I think that was a ploy of Satan. Genesis 6, the flood, that was the biggie. When the sons of God, the fallen angels, got their direction from Satan himself and, and they tried to come up with uh, a, uh, a perverted uh, race where the, the sons of God went into the daughters of men and there were giants born. That was, that was Satan trying to disrupt the line of Christ. So that was, that was an attempt. The slaughter of the innocents when Christ was born and Herod ordered the slaughter of the innocents where all the kids two years old and under were slaughtered throughout the land. Remember, God had already told Mary and Joseph, hey, get up and get gone and go into Egypt where he would be safe. All of that was a ploy of Satan. Well, here's another ploy of Satan as we look at the book of Esther. Somebody comes up with this idea to eliminate God's people. So go all the way back to Esther. And I say all the way back to Esther because we'd already been to Ezekiel. But know this, that Esther falls after Ezekiel or about the same, about the same time historically. Chronologically, uh, you go Ezekiel, Daniel and Ezekiel, then we go to Esther, we'll go to Ezra, Nehemiah, although those are closer to the front of the book, that's not where uh, they are historically. But Esther chapter 1. It's a time period of Israel's captivity. If you want to go back and and see where exactly where it fits in. Kings 24.8. 2 Kings 24.8. Uh, we don't need to go there, but you can write that down. 2 Kings 24.8. Now, someone told me this week, as we go through this, because I get excited. I, I love history. I love the truth of God's Word. They said, slow down. By the time you get a scriptural reference written, that I'm already on three or four more, and they said, slow down. So some of those people out there, I'm going to give you a little white flags to wave if, if I'm going too fast, but just raise your hand, and I'll repeat it, or go time out real quick. I mean, it is football season again, hallelujah. So just, just do time out, and, and we'll go. But in Esther chapter 1, we have the Feast of Ahasuerus. This Harazarus is Darius the Mede. I believe it's the same man that's in Daniel 5.31. He's the same man that's in Nehemiah 2.1. He's the one that Nebuchadnezzar was the king. He's the one that took them all into captivity. Then after Nebuchadnezzar, you have Belshazzar. Belshazzar was his son. Belshazzar was the one that was party, party, party with all of the utensils that came out of, of, the, of the temple of God's, God's furniture, God's uh, the things that came out of the temple, and he's the one that saw the handwriting on the wall. This basically says, you've been balanced, and you've been found wanting, and this day you're going to die. And sure enough, that happened. So that was Belshazzar. So you had Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and then the guy that came and took Belshazzar's place was this guy. Now, if you've seen the movie 300, this Xerxes, this is that guy. This is that guy. And so this guy throws this big party, and a lot of historians believe that he, this fits. He throws this big party because the Greeks had just whipped him. The Greeks had gone, and they had turned him back, and he had suffered such a loss. He was so embarrassed. He thought, what, I mean, even though if you're a great king, you still want to get your people mad at you, right? And so he goes back, and he throws this party for all of the big wigs, all the elite, in, in, uh, in Persia, in Babylonia. He throws this big party and lasts a half a year, six months. And then at the last week, he throws a party, evidently, and they're in a big drunken stupor. Then in the last week, he throws a party for, uh, for everybody, everybody in the Shushan uh, area where he is in the capital. Uh, he calls them for the party. And everybody's participating. And at some point, uh, which that, remember, Babylon was in Iraq. 
Shushan, where this is taking place, is in Iran. So that kind of gives you an idea of how big, how much land uh, that was uh, encompassed. And so he is there and he's throwing this big party. And then he gets this crazy idea. I'm going to call, my, my wife is so pretty. I mean, my wife is pretty, but I mean, this is him. He's saying, my wife is so pretty that I want people to see her. And historians, and even from the scripture here, that he wants her to come uh, wearing nothing but the royal crown. That's basically why she says, I'm not going to do that. Come on, king. Now, she, historically, people say that she was actually the daughter of Belshazzar, the king that had died, uh, and then when Darius stepped in. And so she was royalty. But a lot of people say the reason that she told the king, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that, was because he wanted her to show up in front of all those people uh, in her birthday suit, wearing nothing but the royal crown, and her being a a woman of integrity, I really believe, she said, I'm not doing that. Well, that made uh, Xerxes, that made Ahasuerus really upset. And But it not only did it make him upset, it made all the men that were there with him partying upset. And they were upset because they said, look, if you let your wife get away with this, our wife going to think they have a right to do the same thing. If you, you cannot allow your wife to get away with this because then that's going to make our life miserable because our wives are going to expect us uh, to expect us to be just kind and just as forgiving as you are. So what you've got to do is you've got to make an example of Vashti and you've got to make her no longer queen. And this Ahasuerus being the egotist, being the cruel guy that he really was, said, yeah, we can't have those women thinking that they can get away from disobeying their husbands. It's kind of sad. And that if, that if I don't stop this, while all of our other wives are going to start emulating, they're going to be disrespecting, they're not going to want to show up in their birthday suits when we tell them to do that. And it was... It was a sad day. It was a sad day. It shows how little respect they had for their wives at that time. So a commandment goes out from Ahasuerus, and that commandment says Vashti is no longer queen. And then somebody came up with the idea of, well, but king, you, you do need a queen. And he called all of his counselors in and he said, well, what do we do about that? And they said, need to have a contest. Need to have a contest and you need to pick the fairest, the most beautiful woman in the land. And, the Lord, and, and Hazra said, yeah, I like that idea. I really like that idea. So sure enough, they had a contest. And that contest went for about a year. About a year. As they paraded these different women through but they, for all of them to make a decision on which one was going to be the woman. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. This is the preparation of Esther. Now in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the, the son of Shimei the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had carried away with Jehaniah, uh, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried away. That's why it said go to Second, uh, Second Kings 24 earlier. This pinpoints it. This fixes that point when that happened. So uh, this Mordecai had been taken away in that second siege. And he brought up Hadashah, which is Esther, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took her for his own daughter. 
So it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace to the custody of Hegai, that Esther was brought also into the king's house to the custody of Hegai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him. He speedily gave her things for purification with such things as belonged to her and seven maidens which were meet to be given her out of the king's house, and he preferred her and her maidens into the best place of the house of the women. So Esther made an impression. Beautiful, she was fair, she was smart, she is faithful, she is all of those things. And so Mordecai, her uncle, he has her go and enter the contest, if you will, to see if the king would pick, pick her. Verse 10, and Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred. She hadn't told anybody that she was Jewish. She had not told anyone. For Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. Look at verse, six, uh, verse 15 of chapter 2. We find here that she, that Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. Verse 16, so Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebath, in the seventh year of his reign. So 20, about 22 years from the time that they had been taken into captivity, that's what this had happened. Uh, Esther was a young girl when they'd gone into captivity. Now, all of a sudden, because of what had happened to Vashti, she was about to be placed in a position where she could be an advocate for her people. Because remember, there is a, there's about to be a ploy. There's about to be a, something taking place where... Satan is going to attempt to destroy all the children of Israel. All of them. And so here we have Esther being an advocate for her people. And in the book of Esther, that is exactly what Christ, that's Christ of the book. He is our advocate. She is a type of Christ. She is going to be that mediator, that one mediator that's going to save the people. And here we have that type. We have that beautiful picture of what Christ Jesus is going to do. Verse 20, Esther still hasn't told people that she's Jewish. Nobody really knows that she's Jewish. Not sure it mattered at this time, but evidently mattered to Mordecai because Mordecai said, don't do it. Don't let anybody know. And because of Esther being placed in that position, She's now the queen with all the privileges, all the glory, all the things that go along with being queen. Uh, Mordecai gets kind of a position of authority. Mordecai is, is favored at this point. And so he has a place outside the gate. This is where all the old men kind of get together and they talk about, they might even sip coffee, I don't know there, but they would get together and they would talk about different things that were happening. And they would tell stories. They would hear stories. While Mordecai is doing that, he overhears a conspiracy that two men hate Ahasuerus. They hate Darius. And they are coming up with a plan to destroy him. And Mordecai overhears that plan. And he goes and he tells Esther. And Esther goes to her new husband. And he tells her, hey, I just heard this. And she gives Mordecai credit for that. And the king goes, well, thank you. And then the two guys, they research it, they investigate, and sure enough, according to God's word, it's it's true. These two guys are, are hung. Keep that in mind because that's important. So Mordecai basically saves the king's life. Chapter 3, here comes the plot. Here comes the attempt because of pride, because of ego. Esther's chapter 3. 
And after these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamaditha, the Agite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. So here is this Haman. He is a Hagite. Hagites were from the Amalekites. This is important. This Haman was part of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were those that God had told Israel to destroy a long time ago when they first came out of the land. As a matter of fact, it was the Amalekites that attacked Israel from behind when they were in the wilderness. It was the Amalekites that snuck up behind Israel and killed the children and the old and those that were sort of straggling along. Hey, you got two million people in a long line. There are going to be some that are dragging. I know. And so they, they were dragging. And the Amalekites were coming and they were attacking. And God says, I don't accept that. That is, that is you, you, that's not going to happen. And so God's, God's word is very clear on what is to happen to the Amalekites. Look at Exodus, all the way back to Exodus. Look at Exodus 17. I want you to understand who this Haman is and the bitterness, the hatred, where that came from. And the reason that Mordecai is not going to bow to him. Mordecai is not about to bow to some Amalekite. And here's the explanation. Then came uh, verse 8 of Exodus 17. Then came uh, Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out, men, and go fight. Fight with Amalek t- tomorrow. And I was on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So that's exactly what Joshua and, and, and did. And uh, they, they fought. That's where uh, Joshua and Kip held up Moses' arms. As long as his arms were up, uh, they, they prevailed. But when Moses' arms fell down, uh, they, uh, they, weren't, they weren't prevailing. And so it came that, that uh, uh, Aaron and, and Hur had to hold up Moses' arms uh, during, during that time. But look at verse, look at verse 11. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hands that, that Israel prevailed, and when he let them down, his hand Amalek, uh, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up the hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomforted Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword, and the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah, Jehovah our banner, that's where that phrase comes from, and he said, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And there are other places where they mix it up and they fight. And all it, it just shows you the bitterness that goes on there. So this was Haman. He was an Amalekite. He was part of, he was an Agite from Agag, who was an Amalekite. All sorts of scriptures. But they were bitter enemies, bitter enemies. As a matter of fact, these enemies, and this was fun to do, if you ever decide to to do it, uh, is these people were the descendants. Remember when Joseph goes into Egypt and he saves Egypt and the Pharaoh there was really loving Joseph, but after so many years, there are Pharaohs that came in and didn't like Israel. Uh, Well, those that didn't like Israel, those that moved into that position because of marriages and, and all, they came from these descendants, from the Amalekites. And so there was bitterness. There's, there's been hatred ever since. Look at verse 2. Perpetual war has gone on between these. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had commanded, and this is important, But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Uh, 
he was not about to bow to an Amalekite. He was not about to bow to this, to this guy. Then the king's servant, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why do you transgress thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they spoke daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had shown him, and they thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, alone, for they had showed him that the people of Mordecai, wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. Hazarus, even the people of Mordecai. Who do you think came up with that ploy? Satan himself. Let me destroy him. This is a way to destroy all the people. Now, I want you to understand something. We must obey God rather than man. Your pastor will always obey God and obey his word over man's law. You, you, you need to understand that. And people say, oh, no, 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 no. You, you, whatever, the, whatever the government, whatever uh, they, they say, you as a Christian, you need to obey that. Well, I can just show you scripture after scripture after scripture where it basically tells us we ought to obey God rather than man. And here's a perfect example of that, that here was this king that had issued this, com- this commandment that you are to bow before Haman and Haman like that, and Mordecai said, not going to do it. There are some laws you don't obey. There are some laws that you don't bow to. And this is one of those. And I think there's a lesson here for us to learn as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as believers in the Word of God, that we need to understand that there are times where we obey God rather than man. And we take a firm stand. Mordecai wasn't about to bow down to this enemy when God had already said they were going to be perpetual enemies. He understood what this Amalekite had done. He wasn't about to obey that rule. We know Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar built that that uh, or said not to, to pray, and he still continued to pray. That was a rule. Obey God rather than man. And I believe we're quickly coming to a point in this nation's history when it's going to be necessary for men of God to obey God rather than man and not kowtow and not bow to wokeism and all sorts of things that I think are destructive and to family and to society in general, but that's a whole nother sermon. But I'm glad this is here, because you take this and you believe it, and you understand it. So anyway, Haman gets this idea of these, these Jews, I, I'm, I, I'm going to destroy them. I, I've got the power, I have the might. And he goes to Ahasuerus, and he said, you know, they're a group of people that they came from a captivity, and they really don't do you any good. And what you need to do is eliminate them. You need to kill them. You need to get rid of this group of people. And they're not doing you a bit of good. And Darius went, oh, yeah. Remember, he didn't know his queen is Jewish. Didn't know his queen is Jewish. This would include Ezekiel. This would include Daniel. It would include all of those people during that time. So he wasn't a very bright man, evidently. But then again, he didn't know uh, what, what all was going on going on here, and Haman was devising this plot. And so he got Darius or Hazarus to issue a commandment that on a certain specified day, 12 months from that time, and that date was determined by them casting lots. They cast the purr for a feast of Purim comes from. They were casting pur, they were casting lots to see what date they ought to extend or they were to make that commandment to kill the Jews uh, would take place on. And so they came and they told Haman, we've cast these lots and this is the date. 
And so the king, they go to the king, and the king says, okay, I'll sign it. So he signs it that on this date, it's going to be okay to kill all of those people. And not only were they going to kill those people, they were going to be giving them rewards for killing those people. You, you talk about devilish. You talk about evil. You talk about dark times. You talk about troubling times. That's what was going on. Chapter 4, we have the lamentation of the Jews. They hear about it, and, and Mordecai puts on sackcloth and ashes, and, and he goes, and he mourns, and all of Israel, all those in captivity, they are mourning with him. They're fa- verse 3 of chapter 4 talks about the fact that they're fasting, and they're weeping, and they're wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ate and ashes. Verse 4, so Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it to her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai. Basically, take off those ashes. Don't, here, put these clothes back on. Put these clothes on. And Mordecai says, no, not going to do it. I want you to understand what's about to happen here. And he makes sure she understands that the nation of Israel, they're in jeopardy or to be eliminated. Because of Haman's hatred, his bitterness. Boy, are they needing an advocate. Boy, are they needing someone to come and take a stand on their behalf and approach the king and beg for mercy and for their safety to save them. That's what's going on here. So Mordecai tells Esther what's going on. Look at verse 13. Because Esther, she's like, you know, I I can't go to the king because you you can only go to the king if he has invited you. And if you go before the king and you go uninvited, uh, that's a death sentence. Unless, unless he reaches out his scepter and he points it to you, then that's the green light that you can come on up and you can... You can address him. But if he didn't want you there and you showed up, that was it. Verse 13, chapter 4. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether hold thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth house shall but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knows whether thou art come to the kingdom for just such a time as this. Matter of fact, Esther had. And Mordecai is using that logic. Who who knows, Esther? This this is the reason God has placed you here. This is the reason you are queen. This is the reason God has placed you in this position of authority for such a time as this. I think it's interesting that Mordecai said, Esther, either you do this or God's going to find somebody else to do it. You talk about faith. I I read faith into Mordecai saying, Esther, here's your opportunity, but if you don't want to, God's going to find somebody else to come along and do it. God's not going to abandon us. God's not going to allow this to happen. So either you do it or God finds somebody else to do it. That's what he's talking about there. And Esther, her famous comment, I'll do it. And if I perish, I perish. Wow, how important that is. Verse 16, if I perish, I perish. So we know the story how uh, Esther came up with a, a plan to have a banquet and a big dinner to serve uh, Ahasuerus and Haman. And Haman was like, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm rolling in high cotton now. Hey, I am partying with the king and the queen. And not only, not only am I partying with them, nobody else is either. So that spoke very highly to him, he thought. Of him, he thought. So she has, and the king agrees to come, and he says, now you, you have a question, you have a petition. What's on your mind, Esther? 
And she said, oh, I, I just want you to come to another banquet, and I'll tell you then. He said, well, okay, it's getting like to eat. And then Haman, by this time, was like, wow, this is incredible. Being invited twice in two days to dine with the king and queen. And he goes and he uh, tells his wife, and, but on the way to his house, he sees Mordecai, and Mordecai is not bowing to him. And he is so mad, he goes and he tells his wife, and he says, it, it shows you how bitter this guy is. How horrid a man he is. Look at uh, verse 13 of chapter 5. Uh, he's telling his, Haman's telling his wife and her, for his friends about what the king and the queen are doing. He says, yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. You talk about bitterness and hatred. That's what he had. And his wife says, ah, you know what you need to do? You need to build a gallows. You need to build this gallow so high that everybody in the city can see poor old Mordecai hanging on these gallows. 72 feet high. And Haman went, yeah, yeah, that's what I'll do. People will see that and they'll know you don't mess with Haman. So he builds the gallows. But then the next day he also goes and he has dinner with the king and the queen. And this time the king says, okay, Esther, what's going on? What, what's this all about? And she tells him, chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman came to a banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. Save my people. Save my people. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, and I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king of Hazarus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he? And where is he that does presume so much? And Esther said, The adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. And I can just imagine him right in the middle of taking a bite of something. And just, uh, uh, and she went, he's the enemy. He's the one that's concocted this story, this plot to destroy me and the children of Israel. See, had Haman been successful, had Haman been successful, the children of Israel pretty much would have been wiped out. And remember, this was pretty much all of Judah. And Christ Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. Satan was behind this. And we know the rest of the story. How Haman, the king got so mad, he left. He, he walked out, the Bible tells us. He walked out and he was, he was fuming at what Haman had done. And he finally came back in and Haman was on the queen's bed begging for mercy. But that's not what the king said. I saw what he saw was Haman on the bed with his wife. That made him even madder. And to the gallows, Haman went right then. What's interesting about this story, I mean, a lot of things interesting about this story, but what's really interesting about this story is Ahasuerus couldn't say, I take it all back. I take it back. He couldn't do that. He didn't have, he wasn't sovereign. He couldn't do that. He said, you know what I've written, I've written, and that's the law, and they came up with a plan. Okay, but let us Jews fight back, okay? Let us fight back. Give us the authority to defend our lives. And he said, oh, yeah, sure, you can. So on that particular day, there was a big battle. God blessed, and the enemy, their enemy was wiped out. There was, there was so much money involved in killing these Jews based on Haman, and the, the, the law was there. That, day, that, that date was going to take place regardless of what happened to Haman. And so they showed up, and there was a big battle that ensued, 
And God's people won out because they had an advocate. They had an advocate. Turn with me quickly to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And this morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me tell you something. There is a judgment day coming. Death awaits. You need an advocate. You need someone to stand up on your behalf and say, no, don't do this. Don't destroy them. And fortunately for you, we have the advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator. There's only one advocate. No one else can stand before God the Father on your behalf and declare you righteous. There's only one mediator. There's only one that can come before God the Father and you must be in Him in order to stand before the Father righteous. And that's God the Son. As important and as precise and as wonderful a story as Esther is, let me tell you, there is another story. We were lost. We were undone. We were headed for hell. And Christ Jesus became that advocate for each and every one of us. And what we must do in order to be saved, which is God's will that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. What we must do is exactly what God's Word tells us we need to do, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Believe He is your advocate. Believe He is your mediator. There's none other. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Believing that He died for you. Believing that He was buried for you. Believing that He rose again for you. You may say, well, that's not enough work. Oh, the work was done all right, but it was on Calvary's cross. That's what you believe in order to be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. How we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word and how it tells us that you love us. And Father, even though the name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, your work, your direction, your protection is so obviously there. Father, we thank you for what you say to us in this book. And Father, we thank you for the greatest advocate, the greatest mediator, the great Savior, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And Father, we've come to worship him. Father, we desire to serve him all the days of our lives. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here that's never trusted Christ, that they'll Stand not only their need, but their immediate need for believing in Christ Jesus. Father, today's the day of salvation. Father, may those who do not know you not wait another second, but by faith trust in you. And we pray these things in Christ's holy and most precious name. Amen.